This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 23, Americans Look Inward. After 1865, the U.S. withdrew from the seas, putting itself largely out of the international political realm, the exception being a continuing naval diplomacy using admirals as envoys with Korea in 1882 when Commodore Robert Schufeld followed the Japan precedent of Commodore Matthew Perry. The U.S. was strategically secure when the greatly increased size of field armies, effective fighting forces, make a replay of 1812 impossible when the British were able to put an army on American shores that was able to burn Washington, D.C. After the Civil War, even the entire British merchant marine would have been unable to carry enough troops to invade the U.S. Then the American Pacific presence was uh, still extremely slight, and the far Pacific had no potential enemies. So, in the latter part of the 19th century, the nation had never been so secure. With the Atlantic serving as the widest moat in history, in a world still Atlantic-centered, Americans feel free to shrink the armed forces. Almost immediately, the U.S. Navy dropped from 50,000 men to 12,000, from 530 ships to 117, with appropriations repeatedly cut thereafter. By 1871, the USN budget was 19 million from its 1864 wartime peak of 122 million, one-sixth of the former amount. The able Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells' plans to maintain a small but technologically efficient fleet with supporting dockyards came to naught, and the Navy shrinks to the level of a third-rate power with a leadership mired in intense conservatism, failing to fully embrace the implications of the new technology of the Second Oceanic Revolution. Civil War hero, post-war naval administrator, Admiral David Dixon Porter, made commanding officers pay personally for any coal used unnecessarily. The Navy clung to the monitor type, the so-called cheese box on a raft, formidable only in its grim appearance. With its low freeboard, it proved unseaworthy. The eponymous original nearly foundered on its maiden voyage and eventually would sink off Cape Hatteras. One American naval officer would describe the fleet in the early 1870s as old war horses, not yet turned out to pasture or sent to the slaughterhouse. By 1880, it was without a single armored warship capable of fighting on the high seas. 
The Navy had no steel-hulled vessels, no torpedo boats. Chile had three armored warships more powerful than anything the U.S. Navy possessed. On a world scale, the American Navy sank to number 12. The national focus becomes inward, continental, not oceanic. The developing West commands American attention. The Conestoga wagon, the prairie schooner, usurps the saltwater version as an icon of economic dynamism and expansion. Young men were no longer as interested in the adventure of life at sea. Newspaper editor Horace Greeley exhorts, Go West! The new vehicle for continental expansion becomes the railroad, as Walt Whitman points out. The railroad locomotive is the pulse of the nation. In 1869, the symbolic climax was the driving of the Golden Spike at Promontory Point, marking the completion of the first North American Continental Railroad the same year as the opening of the Suez Canal. Although economically important, foreign trade was not where the attention of the nation lay. Yet, the volume of seaborne trade increases enormously. Between 1865 and 1897, exports would rise 400%. These exports were raw materials, like timber, grain, flour, that is, and cotton. More than half of U.S. Treasury receipts were customs, revenue drawn from foreign commerce. These were the glorious days before the Internal Revenue Service. The United States remains a trading nation, marketing exports globally, but ships flying foreign flags increasingly carry that freight. By 1914, only 2% of the world's deep-sea carriers flew the Stars and Stripes. In commerce as well as in defense, Americans were slow to follow what the Second Oceanic Revolution offered. And as late as 1900, nearly one-half, 46% of the American merchant fleet was obsolete, composed of sailing ships, many of wood. They were good for carrying bulk cargoes such as grain, coal, lumber, over great distances where speed and on-time delivery were not important, but they were not competitive for passengers, mail, or high-value cargo. Steam-propelled iron and steel ships had larger capacities and lower insurance rates. Steam engines constantly improved their efficiency and reliability. Iron is stronger, lighter, and more durable than wood. Wooden ships cost more to maintain and could not exceed 300 feet in length. Furthermore, iron ships were less prone to leakage, which was important to the integrity of the cargo. And steel was even better than iron. 
Americans could not buy, build, or operate ships cheaply enough to compete with foreign ships carrying America's overseas trade. And it was hard to recruit men for the sea. Better alternatives were to be had elsewhere. Artists like writer Herman Melville or painter Winslow Homer took up maritime subjects with gusto, and Americans still loved the sea. But except for fishing, vital to communities like mine, Gloucester, Massachusetts, or yachting, an increasingly popular activity for the privileged, Americans no longer wanted to be deep-water sailors. Join us next time for episode 24, when the Americans take a fresh and dramatic look at the sea, inspired by the nation's new industrial thrust. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Foray. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>